Chapter Two of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two. Ancient England under the Early Saxons. The Romans had scarcely gone away from Britain, when the Britons began to wish they had never left it. For the Romans being gone, and the Britons being much reduced in numbers by their long wars, the Picts and Scots came pouring in, over the broken and unguarded wall of Severus, in swarms. They plundered the richest towns and killed the people, and came back so often for more booty and more slaughter, that the unfortunate Britons lived a life of terror. As if the Picts and Scots were not bad enough on land, the Saxons attacked the islanders by sea, and, as if something more was still wanting to make them miserable, they quarrelled bitterly among themselves as to what prayers they ought to say, and how they ought to say them. The priests, being very angry with one another on these questions, cursed one another in the heartiest manner and, uncommonly like the old druids, cursed all the people whom they could not persuade. So, altogether, the Britons were very badly off, you may believe. They were in such distress, in short, that they sent a letter to Rome entreating help, which they called the groans of the Britons, and in which they said, The barbarians chase us into the sea, the sea throws us back upon the barbarians, and we have only the hard choice left us of perishing by the sword or perishing by the waves. But the Romans could not help them, even if they were so inclined, for they had enough to do to defend themselves against their own enemies, who were then very fierce and strong. At last the Britons, unable to bear their hard condition any longer, resolved to make peace with the Saxons and to invite the Saxons to come into their country, and help them to keep out the Picts and Scots. It was a British prince named Vortigern, who took this resolution, and who made a treaty of friendship with Hengist and Horsha, two Saxon chiefs. Both of these names, in the old Saxon language, signify horse, for the Saxons, like many other nations in a rough state, were fond of giving men the names of animals, as horse, wolf, bear, hound. The Indians of North America, a very inferior people to the Saxons, though, do the same to this day. Hengist and Horsha drove out the Picts and Scots, and Vortigern, being grateful to them for that service, made no opposition to their settling themselves in that part of England, which is called the Isle of Thanet or to their inviting over more of their countrymen to join them. But Hengist had a beautiful daughter named Rowena, and when, at a feast, she filled a golden goblet to the brim with wine, and gave it to Vortigern, saying in a sweet voice, Dear king, thy health, the king fell in love with her. My opinion is that the cunning Hengist meant him to do so, in order that the Saxons might have greater influence with him, 
and that the fair Owena came to that feast, golden goblet and all, on purpose. At any rate, they were married, and long afterwards, whenever the king was angry with the Saxons, or jealous of their encroachments, Rowena would put her beautiful arms round his neck, and softly say, Dear king, they are my people. Be favourable to them, as you loved that Saxon girl who gave you the golden goblet of wine at the feast. And really, I don't see how the king could help himself. Ah, we must all die. In the course of years, Vortigern died. He was dethroned and put in prison first, I am afraid. And Rowena died, and generations of Saxons and Britons died, and events that happened during a long, long time ago would have been quite forgotten but for the tales and songs of the old bards, who used to go about from feast to feast with their white beards, recounting the deeds of their forefathers. Among the histories of which they sang and talked, there was a famous one, concerning the bravery and virtues of King Arthur, supposed to have been a British prince in those old times. But whether such a person really lived, or whether there were several persons whose histories came to be confused together under that one name, or whether all about him was invention, no one knows. I will tell you shortly what is most interesting in the early Saxon times, as they are described in these songs and stories of the bards. In, and long after, the days of Vortigern, fresh bodies of Saxons, under various chiefs, came pouring into Britain. One body conquering the Britons in the east, and settling there, calling their king Domessex. Another body settled in the west, and called their kingdom Wessex. The North folk, or Norfolk people, established themselves in one place. The South folk, or Suffolk people, established themselves in another, and gradually seven kingdoms or states arose in England, which were called the Saxon Heptarchy. The poor Britons, falling back before these crowds of fighting men, whom they had innocently invited over as friends, retired into Wales and the adjacent country, into Devonshire and into Cornwall. Those parts of England long remained unconquered, and in Cornwall now, where the sea-coast is very gloomy, steep, and rugged, where in the dark winter time ships have often been wrecked close to the land, and every soul on board has perished, where the winds and waves howl drearily and split the solid rocks into arches and caverns, there are very ancient ruins, which the people call the ruins of King Arthur's castle. Kent is the most famous of the seven Saxon kingdoms, because the Christian religion was preached to the Saxons there, who domineered over the Britons too much to care for what they said about their religion, or anything else. By Augustine, a monk from Rome. King Ethelbert of Kent was soon converted, and the moment he said he was a Christian, his courtiers all said they were Christians, after which ten thousand of his subjects said they were Christians too. Augustine built a little church close to this king's palace, on the ground now occupied by the beautiful cathedral of Canterbury. Sebert, the king's nephew, built on a muddy marshy place near London, where there had been a temple to Apollo, a church dedicated to St. Peter, 
which is now Westminster Abbey, and in London itself, on the foundation of a temple to Diana, he built another little church, which has risen up since that old time, to be St. Paul's. After the death of Ethelbert, Edwin, king of Northumbria, who was such a good king that it was said a woman or child might openly carry a purse of gold in his reign, without fear, allowed his child to be baptized, and held a great council to consider whether he and his people should all be Christians or not. It was decided that they should be. Coifi, the chief priest of the old religion, made a great speech on the occasion. In this discourse he told the people that he had found out the old gods to be impostors. I am quite satisfied of it, he said. Look at me. I have been serving them all my life, and they have done nothing for me, whereas, if they had been really powerful, they could not have decently done less, in return for all I have done for them, than make my fortune. As they have never made my fortune, I am quite convinced they are impostors. When this singular priest had finished speaking, he hastily armed himself with sword and lance, mounted a war-horse, rode at a full gallop in sight of all the people to the temple, and flung his lance against it as an insult. From that time the Christian religion spread itself among the Saxons, and became their faith. The next very famous prince was Egbert. He lived about a hundred and fifty years afterwards, and claimed to have a better right to the throne of Wessex than Beatrix, another Saxon prince who was at the head of that kingdom, and who married Eberga, the daughter of Offa, king of another of the seven kingdoms. This queen Egberga was a handsome murderess, who poisoned people when they offended her. One day she mixed a cup of poison for a certain noble belonging to the court, but her husband drank of it too, by mistake, and died. Upon this the people revolted in great crowds, and, running to the palace and thundering at the gates, cried, Down with the wicked queen who poisons men! They drove her out of the country, and abolished the title she had disgraced. When years had passed away, some travellers came home from Italy, and said that, in the town of Pavia, they had seen a ragged beggar-woman, who had once been handsome, but was then shrivelled, bent, and yellow, wandering about the streets crying for bread, and that this beggar-woman was the poisoning English queen. It was indeed Egberga, and so she died, without a shelter for her wretched head. Egbert, not considering himself safe in England, in consequence of his having claimed the crown to Wessex, for he thought his rival might take him prisoner and put him to death, sought refuge at the court of Charlemagne, king of France. On the death of Beatrix, so unhappily poisoned by mistake, Egbert came back to Britain, succeeded to the throne of Wessex, conquered some of the other monarchs of the Seven Kingdoms, added their territories to his own, and, for the first time, called the country over which he ruled England. And now new enemies arose, who for a long time troubled England sorely. These were the Northmen, the people of Denmark and Norway, whom the English called the Danes. They were a warlike people, 
quite at home upon the sea, not Christians, very daring and cruel. They came over in ships and plundered and burned wheresoever they landed. Once they beat Egbert in battle, once Egbert beat them. But they cared no more for being beaten than the English themselves. In the four following short reigns, of Ethelwulf and his sons Ethelbard, Ethelbert, and Ethelred, they came back, over and over again, burning and plundering and laying England waste. In the last-mentioned reign, they seized Edmund, king of East England, and bound him to a tree. Then they proposed to him that he should change his religion. But he, being a good Christian, steadily refused. Upon that they beat him, made cowardly jests upon him, all defenceless as he was, shot arrows at him, and, finally, struck off his head. It is impossible to say whose head they might have struck off next, but for the death of King Ethelred, from a wound he had received in fighting against them, and the succession to his throne of the best and wisest king that ever lived in England. End of chapter 2